Now, why in the world did we just play that song in church, <laughs> right? Um, now, listen, if you're visiting here today or you haven't been keeping up with our series at all, your confusion is genuine. Like, I get it. Uh, the rest of you, I should be able to bring you up to speed by saying just this, quite simply. The song you just heard is an incredible, good representation of Genesis 3 through 11. God makes this good thing, gives it to mankind, and almost immediately, stuff goes wrong. Adam and Eve elevate their desires above everything else. What I want is what's most important. Cain kills his brother. Noah's shipbuilding is needed because the whole world is just off the charts evil. We get to a place where society has started again and a whole group of people organize themselves together to ignore what God wants. It's about me first, me first, me first. Genesis 3 through 11. Now this morning, this is our last week of this series. Uh, I, I was uh, talking to the staff a couple weeks ago and I said, I think I might start coming back um, into this Genesis area every year, and they kind of pushed back at me and said, what in the world would you wait a year to do this for? And I, I had my reasons, and I gave them all my reasons, and they were sympathetic but unmoved. And so I, I kind of took that advice, and we're going to try something this year. We're going to come back in May. We're going to look at Abram. Then I don't know what to do about Esau and Jacob, but I've got a whole bunch of stuff on Joseph that we'll do next January, and, and we'll get in that. Um, but the first chapters of our story, Genesis 11 through 3, are as jarring as the song you just heard. Really uncomfortable reading. Why are people choosing to do this? And then something weird happens. Chapter 12. Chapter 12 shows up, and there's a sharp turn in the story. And it goes in a direction that nobody has seen coming. And one of the things that happens is God taps Abram, this guy, and he says, listen, I want to make a great nation out of you, a nation that will bless the world. That's what I have in mind with you. And the rabbis who have been reading this story and have been digging into the Torah for, I don't know, thousands of years, a couple thousand years now, right? have looked at this and said, why? They've asked a question that I never even, it never even crossed my mind. They asked, why did God choose Abram? Now, I, I just assume that God does what he wants to do, and that's enough for me. But as I thought about it, there is some validity to the question. In fact, if you go and you start thinking about other people who show up in the text, that we're often given a reason why God kind of tapped into their life. We're told that Noah was righteous. Um, we're told that Moses was humble. We're told David was a man after God's own heart. We're told Job is blameless. Do you want to know what we see here in the scriptures right before Abram shows up on the scene? A genealogy. It tells us who his family relatives are, and then all of a sudden, this big promise is bestowed upon him. And, and you're like, 
Why did that happen? What about him is so different than the rest of the story that we've been hearing about up to this point? Because it's not been good. It's not been a good thing. If God was looking for partners all along the way, up to that point, he hadn't found any. And yet something happened that caused him to say, I think I can work with this guy. Now, let's be real clear here. What God did not find was a perfect man. In fact, none of the list that I just gave you of those people who had great descriptors ended up being perfect. So God isn't tapping into them because they somehow earned or deserved it. In fact, here's what I think is going on. I think this is going on. I want to read you how God operates in this world. This is 2 Chronicles um, chapter 16, verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. That's the verse that we hear most often. Do you know there's a second part? This is what it also says. You have done a foolish thing, and from now on, you will be at war. This is a conversation with a king from Judah. Somebody's looking at him and saying, listen, man, you had a chance for God to show up and strengthen you. But you made other choices with your life, and now what you're going to get out of that is war. You're not going to be at peace. You're, there's going to be suffering and pain, and God's not doing it to him. He did it to himself. And what he missed was that he had the opportunity to live in a way that God would have looked at his heart and said, I want to strengthen you. I want to I find this thing that's in there. And I want to find a way to bring that forward. I, I suspect that that's what's going on in the story with Abram and with all of these other guys too. Because like I said, not perfect. No way are they perfect. But somewhere along the line, something happened in their heart that God saw and said, that I want to strengthen. And that, that has some interest for me. Because at the end of my days, I'd like to be able to say, I, I was at least open to the possibility that could God, use, God could use me as a partner. Like that there was stuff that wasn't in the way with my own heart that prevented that from happening. God can do what he chooses to do. He can choose to use me in that way or not. But we also know that what goes on in here could prevent him. And we saw chapter after chapter of the beginning of our story where people decided they would do it their way and God waited patiently until the right heart condition came along. Now, here's the thing. If you're at all curious about why God might have tapped Abram, um, I, I'm encouraged because there was a bunch of Jewish rabbis who were so irritated by this that for hundreds of years, they gave themselves to try to figure out why that was there. Why did God choose Abram? And they spent a lot of time in a section of scripture that I would read past. I would not give it the kind of time and energy they did. They went back to that genealogy and they read it deeply. And so here's what we're going to do this morning. Although it's going to be a little tedious and be something that we as a culture would not generally spend time with, I'm going to take you through the genealogy. 
And there are going to be moments where you're going to wonder, why are we doing this? Why are we taking so much time? I want to tell you right now, because I think the payoff at the end is worth it. But there needs to be a whole bunch of details that you understand from the culture before we can get there. Okay, so um, that's where I'm planning to head right now. And I hope, I hope that you'll just have enough curiosity to hang with me for a little while, because I believe at the end of this, there's going to be an opportunity for us to have a gut check, for us to ask, well, what's going on with Abram? I wonder if that could go on with me. So I want to take you uh, to Genesis chapter 11. It's about, to, it's about to take that turn in 12, and we're going to see a genealogy. <laughs> it's not... Abram's genealogy, though. It's, it's somebody else's. And there, I think, is an important reason for this. So in Genesis um, eleven twenty seven, it says, this is the account of Terah's family line. So for whatever reason, God feels it's necessary to start with Abram's father to paint this picture of what's going to happen, not Abram, Okay. So we're going we're gonna to create a family tree. We're going to put it up here so that you can understand what's going on and all the pieces that are going with it. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, generally speaking, the first person in a genealogy list would be the oldest, except we know from other texts and piecing this together, Abram is not the oldest. He's actually the youngest. He's there because he's the most prominent in the story, and so they moved him to the front of the line. But being the youngest, um, is that even going to be important? It is, because he's going to do something the youngest son would not do, okay? So this, that's going to be important, all these little details. So um, Terah has three kids, and it gives us another detail in verse 27, and Haran became the father of Lot. So we can fill that part of the story in, um, which, is, which is odd because Lot is going to end up following with his uncle Abram some, somewhere down the line, okay? Now it gets interesting. While his father Terah was alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Okay, we just got a lot of important details here. First of all, now we know where the family is from. They're from Chaldea. And at the time when um, Haran died, they were still there. And uh, Lot's one of his kids, and now you kind of have a, a thing that's happening that you can understand how this is going to flow throughout the whole story. Uh, but in the ancient culture, your father provided everything. Your, provi your father provided food. He provided shelter. He provided a reputation. He would provide your occupation. Everything you got came from your father. But what happens when Lot's father passes away? Does Lot go off on his own? Is he done? He does not. Because the patriarch of that family is still in place. So he, he becomes technically, culturally, a son of Terah. And um, by the way, this location, that the fact that they're from Chaldea is going to be important because we're about to find out some stuff uh, that's going to matter with, the, with terms of the location of where these things happen, okay? So now you have, you have a, technically another son operating with Terah. 
And then in verse 29, it starts to get like creepy and odd, right? 29, Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran. Okay, let's put that up there. And this is where the creepy alert signs, sirens go off in your mind, right? Because it appears that uncle is marrying niece. Um, in their culture, this was considered acceptable under some very specific, for some very specific reasons. Uh, you would, if, if um, somebody had lost their covering, their protection of their father, you could marry them to give them protection. Um, why would this happen? We know Haran died, but, and we know that Milcah is a daughter of Haran, but here's the deal. You get everything from your father, and she automatically becomes technically a daughter of Terah, which means Terah's responsibility is also to marry her off. And you would marry somebody off in your own people group. So if they're in Ur, when Haran died and Milcah was of age to marry, she would have been married off to somebody in that culture. But, may, but maybe... This is where all the questions come up. Because we know in verse 31 that this family, this family is very different. They move. They move and they go to a different um, culture. They go to Canaan. And um, so did they not marry off Milcah because they were moving and they wanted to stay connected to her? Did they not marry off Milcah because she was too young at the time and when dad passed... Then they moved, and when they moved to this other place, I can tell you this for sure, there's no way she's marrying a Canaanite. They're not from the same culture, they're not from the same family, you would not do that. And so when her protection dies, not Haran, who's her protection? Terah. Then she would be left out in the cold. Because who would be there to marry her in Canaan? You're not going to marry to her local, and she's away from Chaldea. She's in trouble. And so you have, this, you have this understanding of why Nahor would step in and do this sort of thing. Again, we don't know ages, we don't know timing. We don't even know, honestly, if Abram was born in Chaldea. He's the younger brother. They could have moved, and he might have been born in Canaan, too. So there's a lot of stuff going on in terms of timing that we're not sure about. But, but we do know how culturally they operated, and this would be one of the reasons that this would happen, okay? Um, culturally acceptable for uncle to marry niece under those circumstances. But then this gets said at the end of verse 29. So she's the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Ishka. Who's Ishka? Uh, here's what we know. You do not include women in genealogies unless there's a reason. Like there had to be an important reason for her to be included. But you want to know what? This is the first and last mention of Ishka in the scriptures. And so rabbis have looked at this and said, this is really troubling um, obviously, there has to be a purpose that she's here, 
And um, for a long time, there's been a lot of exploring. And let me give you the three most popular theories as to who Ishka is. This is going to be important. Hang with me. Some have said um, it's obvious that Ishka is important. She would not have been included in the genealogy without some level of importance. But whatever that reason was has been lost to us. We have no idea why she's there, and we should just read past that. That, that doesn't feel good to me, but there's some people who believe that. Uh, another group, this is a larger group of Jewish rabbis who now believe this, are convinced that Ishka and Sarai are the same person. The, the reason they believe this is because Ishka in the Chaldean tongue means princess, and Sarai means my princess, where if you follow it, she was named princess Abram decided to marry her and called her my princess. And in so doing, he is stepping in and finding a way to also give covering to somebody who, again, would have been considered technically a daughter of Terah. Uh, now, there's another group of people who said, no, I, I, I think Ishka is an unknown mystery because... She's not Sarai. And the, the reason they say that is found in Genesis chapter 20, verse 12. Let me give you some background. Abram and Sarai are married. And they go to live in Egypt, and he starts lying to people and saying, um, she's my sister. I'm not actually married to her. And the reason is he wants people to come and court her. And when they do, they'll give him stuff, and he'll become rich. And he's doing this because he said, she's really beautiful. They're going to pay me a lot of money. And it actually works. He starts getting all kinds of wealth, but he gets caught. They find out he's lying, and they confront him with his lie. And this is what he says. This is verse 12 of chapter 20. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. So you, we have two options. She's a sister from another mother, or Abram just did what most of us do when we get caught in a lie. We try to use a technicality to get out of it. Yeah, she's my wife, but technically she's also my sister, and she would have been considered a sister with the line of Terah too, um, because he would have then been protecting them. So... Is there anything in there that gives us any more hints as to how this is playing out? And actually, I think there is. Uh, there's some stuff going on in the Hebrew that's really different, that gives us an idea, I think, of maybe who Ishka is. Uh, I want to read it to you in the Hebrew. It would never have been translated this way. It's not proper English, and I can understand why the translators would have never put it in your text this way. But it's this way in the Hebrew for a reason, and you'll understand that after we go and, and check it out. This is what um, verse 29 actually says when it starts. Abram and Nahor, he took wives. That's weird, right? Why would you use a singular to describe the action of two and then attach it to a plural? It, just, it doesn't make sense. And so people have read that, and they're like, ah, they didn't mean to do that, and they cleaned it up in the English for us. Oddly enough, this phrasing, 
is used somewhere else earlier in the text in Genesis chapter 9. I want to take you to it. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 23, it says this, but Shem and Japheth, he took a garment. Let me give you a background. Shem and Japheth are Noah's sons. And in this section of scripture, Noah's youngest son has wronged him. I, um, someday, maybe we'll talk about it in church. It's much, much worse than what you read in the text. There's only a couple options for what his son could have done to him. They're both horrible and disturbing, and that's why we skipped it. I just didn't want to even get into it. But he wrongs his father, and, and his brothers see this wrong, and they decide that we're, that we're going to do something about it, except the way that it's written, he took a garment, means that one of them had the idea to do a benevolent act to care for their father, that he went to somebody else, his brother in this case, and, and told him his idea, and the brother signed on, and they did the benevolent act together with a sense of unity. And so um, his brother harms Noah. Shem has the idea. We should care for the, our father. We should take care of this. He goes to his brother, Japheth, and says, listen, I think we should do this. And his brother goes, I agree with you. And together in unity, they take a garment. I think it was actually more than that. But they go and they cover their father. And they care for him in a benevolent sort of way. So if you understand that that's what's happening when you see this stuff in the text, let's take it back to Abram and Nahor. Abram and Nahor, he took wives. Whose idea was this? Who's first? Abram. It was, he's the youngest son. It is not his responsibility to care for the well-being of the family name or the family. So the fact that he's doing this as a, as a youngest son, that stands out. But there's a bigger reason that this stands out. Um, how old do you think Sarai was? We can back into this. We can back into this from what we know in other parts of the text. We know that Sarai was with Abram for 25 years before she had a kid. She had a kid at age 90. Back up the math. She's 65 years old when Abram decides to marry her. Now, because of my age, I would say that's not old anymore, but it's not a young chicken, right? In fact, it's even worse. It's even worse in this culture. You should understand how this happens. In this culture, when you had your first menstruational cycle, they looked for a husband and married you off as soon as they could after that happened. You were gone. But in this culture, if you were given to a man and you did not have kids, they could return you to the family. She's 65 years old, still with her family. What do you think the chances are that she's been returned? High. Everybody knows that she could not have kids. In fact, verse 31, or maybe it's 30, says this directly. Oh, where am I? 
Okay, hold on. It says, now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Everybody knew that she didn't have kids. Everybody knew that she couldn't have kids. Now, here's what I think happened. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, cheat a little bit by taking a little bit of history out of Acts chapter 7. In the middle of verse 4, it tells us this about the situation with Abram. It's speaking about Abram, and it says this. Um, after his father died, after the death of his father, God sent him to the land where he was now living. He did not leave his father until his father died. And in fact, I think what happened is Terah's death triggered everything that you just read in that genealogy. Terah died, and all of a sudden, there are two people who are left out in the cold. There's, there's nobody to give them shelter. There's nobody to give them protection. There's nobody to give them, really, food. And Abram looks at this situation and says, this isn't right. There's no way that we can leave them out like that. And he goes to his brother, his older brother, and says, I think we should do this. And I'll, I'll take Sarai. I'll take the one that we all know can't have kids. Why is that a big deal? Well, in their culture, it must have been a pretty big deal to have kids if you could actually return the girl if she didn't. But what Abram was doing was he was resigning himself that his family line would come to an end by making the choice that he made. Maybe he'd have to do it in another creative way, which a lot of people think is the reason Lot was invited along with him. The Lot went with him so that technically he could call one of Lot's kids somebody from his household. And, and he would be able to say, see, I, I, a great nation came from my household because this happened with under under my care. But he, he didn't think Sarai was going to be that for him. Now, now listen, let's just do a little bit of contrast here because it's pretty stark. See, the, the first part of Genesis 3 through 11 has been Gavin DeGraw ugly, like that song, that gross song that we sang. It's been that gross. Where Adam and Eve said, I think we'd like to be like God. We, if we elevate our desires above what God says, we'll be better off. Cain says, I want to acquire a name for myself. If that means I have to put my brother in the ground so that my name can be bigger and better, so that God will accept my sacrifice because he can't take his anymore, that's what I'll do. Noah's with a whole world who's so evil, God's like, I got to do away with this. And yet as it starts over again, the Tower of Babel, this group of people get together and they decide they would rather follow their own agenda 
refuse to scatter. We're going to build a name for ourselves. We're going to do something great. And we can do this together to ignore God. The contrast of that against the heart of a guy who steps in and says, you know what? I'll marry her. Not because of what I'm going to get out of it. I'll marry her because I think it's the right thing to do. I'll marry her because I think it's good. And if it means that I will be erased from history for so doing, I'm in. I'll sign up for that kind of thing. See, apparently, somewhere in Abram's heart, he was, an, he was not an empire builder. He didn't care about himself above everybody else. And in the stories that we've been seeing up to this point, the one thing that people cared about was themselves more than anything else. If you looked around our culture right now, what attitude do you think is most prevalent? If I were to put, if I were to put a finger on it, it would be this little phrase. What do I get out of this? It seems to permeate everything that happens in our culture. I'm not joking when I say everything. Permeates how we look at jobs. It permeates how we do relationships. It even touches how we interact with sports in our culture. How will this impact me? What can I get out of it? I, I, I wonder... How many times at work you've made a decision that's really good for the organization that you're working for, but it's horrible for you and you supported it anyway? Why would you do that? It's, it's not really good for me. I wonder if that happens when we play sports. I, I've watched this over and over again, where if your playing time isn't exactly what you want it to be, you're ticked off. Your attitude goes out the window. Why? Because it's not about what we do together. It's about what I can get out of this. And although we're doing this team thing, it's really about me. And if you think for a second that's not happening with relationships, I don't know how many friendships I've watched explode over that kind of thing. I don't know how many marriages I've watched where people got married with the idea that I'm going to get out of you what I need to get out of you, and they try to extract that out of each other, and that only goes so long, and then things break. And yet here in this story, we have a guy who instead of saying, what do I get out of this, looks at the situation and says, this isn't good. This isn't right. I'm going to do this. And listen, this is really important. All of that happened. His choice to step up and to take Sarai as a wife. All of that happened before God ever showed up and offered him a promise. See, I think God saw something in his heart that he decided he wanted to strengthen. Remember, he, was, he lies a little bit later about her being his wife, not a perfect guy, definitely not perfect. 
but he saw something in the heart that was worth strengthening. And he showed up in a big way to say, I think, I think we can work together. I think I could bring this out of you. I think, I think if I could bring that out of you, it could be good for the whole world. Why don't you partner with me? If God were to examine your heart right now, do you think he would find something that's a little closer to what's in it for me? Or is there something in there that really cares about doing what's right and what's good and honoring God, even if it costs you? And by the way, it did cost Abram. How long was he with Sarai before she had a kid? 25 years. God strengthened his heart for the journey. He didn't make his journey easy. He didn't make it good. He didn't, didn't take away the hardship at all. But he did strengthen him for purposes that were grand and incredible. Uh, band, if you would make your way up here. See, here's, here's the tough part about this. When it comes to your heart, you're the only one who knows the truth. You're the only one who knows if the motives that you have are about what you can get out of it or if you are okay, genuinely okay, with having some sort of cost in your life and you end up on the short end. And you're okay with that because it was worth doing what was right. It was worth doing what was good. My hope is that as you examine this section of Scripture and you process it and you think about it, that you'll realize that when Abram chose to do that, when he chose to look at the situation that was unfolding, these people who were going to be outside of, by the way, it doesn't matter. If you, if you want to believe that it was a sister from another mother, the benevolent act is still intact. He knew that she did not have protection. And he signed up to take somebody on who couldn't have kids. He knew it. This was a hard, um, I actually made a different decision last week than I'd been making on something really important. It might seem small, but it was important to me. And I had dug my feet in, and I was fighting, because I felt like I was being wronged. And the central part of the question was, what's in it for me? And I realized that that was a reflection of my heart. And I did the right thing, and I got hosed. And you know what? Pick me up. Because there's still something in me that cares deeply about me. But I want it to be true about my life that I care more about God care more about what's right, and I care more about what's good, that God has an opportunity to use my life. And I hope as you come and worship, 
that as you reflect on that truth, it will be true about you. And that although you might not have clarity on what's going on in your heart, that God will give you that. In fact, let me pray for us real quick before you worship. God, I'd like to believe that this message is for somebody else, but it was about me, and uh, you used that in my heart. But I think it's bigger than that, and so I just ask that we, as a community, would be open to examining our hearts and finding out if we're really motivated by you or by what's in it for us.